thank you for joining us for this episode of Corkscrews and Contracts. I'm Wyeth Wallace. And I'm Jennifer Hamrick. And we started this podcast to really give everyone an idea about investing in real estate and even buying their own home. We've got something really awesome for everybody today. So we encourage you to grab a glass of wine and drink some wine while we talk real estate. Today we are drinking on Old Soul. It is a Cabernet Sauvignon from California. Cheers. Jody Rip Bugter is the Tennessee Division Manager with Asset Preservation Incorporated. Jody comes to Asset Preservation with an extensive background in Internal Revenue Code Subsection 1031 Tax Deferred Exchanges. Since 2003, Jody has worked in the real estate and financial advisor services industry with a focus on educating and working with investors, attorneys, real estate brokers, agents, accountants, and financial advisors throughout Tennessee. And trust me, Jody has a unique way of making complicated subject matter extremely easy to understand. Please help us welcome Jody Rip Bugter. Hi, thank you very much. I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. We're glad to have you today. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Uh, my gosh. So, so 1031 exchanges are a big thing in real estate. And, um, you know, where do we even start, really? <laughs> Well, you're absolutely correct. 1031 exchanges are a big thing. And let's start at the beginning of 1031 exchanges. While many of us are seeing 1031 exchanges happening now, and especially in the Nashville market, such a wonderful place to live in a booming market. And obviously a lot of people are wanting to live here. Um, All of us that live here and have real estate are getting to experience a great growth in the real estate that we own. And 1031 exchanges, though, although it's kind of new to us or the people around here experiencing the boom, it has been done since 1921. 1921 was when the code was written, the IRS code 1031 exchange, that gave the, I guess, the how-to and the regulations on 1031 exchanges. But if you back up before that, people were still doing 1031 exchanges, swapping properties. But what the 1031 exchange essentially does is allow you to defer, not get rid of completely, Mm -hmm. but to defer your taxes, your capital gain taxes on real estate. Wow, 100 years. (laughs) Yes. That's amazing. (laughs) It feels like it was last week when somebody said that to me. Yeah. 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 And so many people still don't know about it or don't really understand it. So we're glad you're here to, to clear, clear it all up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're right. There's a lot of people that don't know about it, uh, know enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and there's some people who think they know all about it and they're completely wrong as well. <laughs> and as I would love to say today in the podcast that we can go from A to Z, of the 1031 exchange, I don't think any listener is going to want to sit for three days <laughs> listening about 1031 exchanges. Um, you, I feel like you'd be surprised. We just went, it's not even uh, April 15th yet. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> literally, I'm still thinking about all the things that I should have told my accountant while getting ready for this year. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, oh you know, there was that stick of gum that I bought. And I really, <laughs> man, need to add that up. Well, I think you're just fortunate you're getting your taxes done in time for April the 15th. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so many people don't. Yes. So if you were like me, you're sending your CPA a email to say, please file an extension. So <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yes. And for years now, I've always just, just put it off as long as, because I've never, you know, not never, but it's been a long time since I got a refund for anything. Yes. 
So they're like, all right, well. Well, and don't let him fool you like he did it all his own, all by himself. He hired an assistant to prepare his taxes <laughs> to have it ready. Well, he's a man after my own heart because <laughs> why do that when you could be doing many other things? Right. So, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So... Um, before we get any deeper in 1031 mm-hmm. exchanges, I know um, you live in Nashville now, yes. in the Brentwood area, yes. um, but you're not from here. Well, I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, Okay. Um, but I, went to, I ended up coming to Nashville, went to college at MTSU, mm-hmm. and lived in Nashville from probably about 94 until about 2003. Okay. So I was living here when you could still rent a, an apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, right behind Maggiano's, between 31st and Aquin yeah. on Long Boulevard for five seventy five a month. Two bedroom, one bath, red exposed brick, hardwood floors. So I really am going to date myself at this moment. But um, <laughs> yes, I moved to San Diego in 2003. Okay. It was a wonderful, fun experience. Southern Girl never even visited and just moved out there with my best friend. I had a wonderful time, but that's where I started really cutting my teeth and learning and working in the investment real estate 1031 exchange world um, because in 2003 the economy was booming mm-hmm. and 1031 exchanges were much like they are now very done all the time in the Southern California market and Californians specifically have a much better reason to do 1031 exchanges probably than anywhere else in the country for the fact of their taxes on the state level is much higher as well okay. so yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I've been doing the 1031s, but I'm originally from the area, lived here, and moved back in 2011. And um, can't believe I've already been back here for about nine years. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah. It goes by fast. It goes by way quick. Mm-hmm. And the city has changed just from moving back, it's changed quite a bit. So, yeah. yes. So if somebody's trying to get into investing mm-hmm. and, um, they don't, you know, they don't know a lot yet. They're learning because we have a wide range of people that listen. Um, what's your recommendation on the best on 1031 exchanges, how to understand it and how to, how to use it to benefit them? Mm-hmm. So the, the number one thing that I tell people, and if anybody is on this podcast that's ever heard me speak, um, I do a lot of speaking engagements, is there's no way that you're going to learn this code and everything about it. Uh, I am always available. I'll tell anybody that talks to me, call me. I don't mind helping you through. Now, I can never give you individual personal tax advice. Mm-hmm. I can talk in generalities of the 1031 exchange. So if you're telling me, what do I have in taxes personally? I can't do that, nor would you want me to. But what Oh, I- shucks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No free tax um, <laughs> advice from here. So, But... Um, You know, the number one thing that I tell people, that it's anybody who's starting out, um, explain what the 1031 is. You own a non-owner occupied property, an investment property that you purchased for investment, to hold for investment. Now there's a huge difference. I'm going to go to East Nashville, well you used to could do this, buy a house for less than $100,000 and fix it up and flip it for two fifty. dollars Now you've got to buy it at two fifty dollars and then hope to fix it and everything. But if you're going to buy a property in the word flip and I'm going to buy this and flip it, can't do a 1031 exchange. Okay. Now some people are like, well that's investment. Well yes. 
but that does not count. You have to hold the property for investment. Then people say, well, how long do I have to hold it? There's no timeline in the tax code, in the 1031 tax code regs that says you must hold this for a year, you must hold this for two years. It is truly your intent, right? Mm -hmm. So then there comes questions along that, and at some point I have to say, it's your decision, your choice with your CPA on if you wanna do a 1031 exchange or not. Um, But just remember, it's always non-owner occupied property that's held for investment. So what kind of property? Do I have to take a piece of land and go buy a piece of land? Mm. Or, or, you know, is it um, only apartments? Is any real estate investment that you have, you can defer all the capital gains by going and buying another piece of investment real estate that you could hold for investment, Mm. okay? So um, what, what I tell people all the time, you can take a single family residence and buy raw land. You can take an apartment building, buy an office building, as long as it's held for investment. That's exactly what the 1031, I mean, that's the gist of the 1031, but the most important thing that if anybody can hear me, um, in order to do your exchange, you must have your exchange set up prior to closing the property you're selling. Uh, One of the worst calls I get is when someone calls me and says, hey Jody, you know, I want to do a 1031 exchange. I've heard, you know, my so-and-so talked to me about this or said something to me about it. And and I kind of ask them questions about the property. Tell me a little bit about your property. And, oh, it was a rental home I had for five years. You know, and ask them what they're going into, different things and kind of all of that. And I'll say, well, tell me when you're closing. Mm. Well, I closed two weeks ago. I have to be the bearer of bad news that you must have your 1031 exchange set up prior to closing on the property you're going to do a 1031 exchange. Um, I'll do a short plug with my company, Asset Preservation Inc. We can at that time set up a 1031 exchange an hour prior to you closing. It's easy to do. And we can set it up an hour prior. We ask you not to do that to us, but we can set up the exchange. And I have done it numerous times, but just make sure it's always set up prior to closing. What's the ideal time frame? (laughs) So the ideal time frame is also going to be less hectic for you if you do it in the ideal time frame. Um, As soon as you get a contract on the property... What is needed to set up the 1031 exchange is the contract on the property you're selling, a executed uh, purchase and sell agreement, and then whomever you're using to do your closing. So your title work and closing. Because at that point, we're gonna reach out to them to get the preliminary title. And we're also gonna be reaching out to that person to make sure that the money is wired from their account directly to the qualified intermediary's account. So, and that's why you want to set that up prior. And the earlier you get it done, it's one less thing you have to worry about when you come to the closing table, right? When we close on a piece of investment property and you've got other things going on in your life, the last thing you want to be doing is worrying the day of closing, do I have this set up, this set up, and this set up? It takes a lot of stress off of you as the investor as well to go ahead and set it up. Um, There's a few things in there with the exchange. Like I said, the money is wired from your escrow directly to the qualified intermediary. 
And what it really is, is you can never have constructive receipt of your funds in order to do 1031 exchange. If I close on a house or a piece of real estate and I don't set up exchange, I can call escrow and say, send my money to this account or that account anytime. Hmm. And that's constructive receipt. I have the ability to do with that money I want. Well, when doing an exchange, you can't have that constructive receipt. So the money, at the time that you close on the property, your proceeds, you might pay off a bank loan and have equity left and proceeds, that money moves from your escrow directly to the qualified intermediary account. Mm. Okay. So then we become the bank for you, if you think about it, and your timeline starts. And that's a timeline that it tells you 180 days total, divided into two time periods. 45 days to identify, 135 additional days to close on the property or properties that you identify. Now that's a max timeline. I tell people all the time, be looking for a property that you wanna buy while you're under contract of the property you're selling. Because you could essentially put an offer on the property you wanna buy, close on your property today, and close on your new property the next day. Why have that money sitting in an account? We want the money working for you as soon as possible. Right. So those are max timelines on that as well. It's just, it's still so exciting. What is the, um, if you had an idea of, and, and once again, taxes are kind of confusing for a lot mm -hmm. of people. What, how much money are we talking here? Like what you all do, how important is it? Okay. For, you know, like if you were saying either in Middle Tennessee or if it was in California, a price range or a dollar range of what could be left on the table by not doing something like this. Absolutely. So the way that it works is, is if let's say I buy a property for $200,000 and then, excuse me, I hold it and I sell it for 500, okay? There's essentially, and these are just round numbers, there's a lot more to it, but this is pro as basic as we can get. There's essentially, wouldn't everybody agree, if I bought the property and it's the first property I ever purchased, it was 200 and I sold it for 300, excuse me, 500, there's a $300,000 gain in that property. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at paying the long-term cap gains on that income producing or even investment property that I held for investment, there's four levels of possible taxation, okay? The first level is gonna be recaptured depreciation. Mm -hmm. So any property that you have a actual building on it, if it's a rental home, if it's an office building, or if it's an apartment and so forth, you're going to depreciate that property over years to provide a higher cash flow when you receive the cash flow. So the first level is the IRS says, all right, you've depreciated this property, let's pretend over five years, and there's $30,000 of depreciation. You're going to have to pay back 25% of the depreciation that you have depreciated. So you basically have 25% recapture depreciation is level one. Okay, that's always the case unless you didn't depreciate the property and there still could be depreciation. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that doesn't for sure have depreciation is land. Right. There's no building to depreciate. The next level is going to be your federal cap gains level. Mm -hmm. Okay, that can be anywhere from 15 to 20%. And that all depends on your income level. When they look at income for the federal cap gain, they're looking at all income, earned income, capital gain, 
so forth and so on. And if you're married and you're filing joint, I think it's right around $487,000. If you make 487 or higher, you're in the 20%. If you make less, you're at the 15%. But remember, if you sell a property and it pushes you up above that 487 between your earned income, rental income, dividend income, and the list goes on, you could easily be put into that 20% on the federal side. Wow. Yeah. So we got two more levels. Um, <laughs> no. It gets even more fun. It gets even more fun. The next level is the state level. For those of us in Tennessee, Texas, you know, a lot of the states that do not have any state income tax, um, and again, you'd have to look at each state-by-state state basis, there's no state cap gains. Okay? Miss that one. Yeah, but if you live in the wonderful state of California, mm. it's right around 13%. So some of these high state taxes could be a huge significant portion of your capital gains as well. Mm. So for those that live in states where there's capital gains, they're going to have to have the state capital gains. I had a client today say, well, I live in, um, I live in Tennessee, but I have a property in Colorado. Well, it depends on where your property is. So even though you live in Tennessee and you have residents in Tennessee, your property's in a state that has taxes, you will pay the long-term cap gains tax for that state. Okay? Good to know. Very good to know. Yes. So the last and final level doesn't apply to everyone, but this is um, called a net investment income tax. (laughs) It was with the 2010 tax changes for to help with the Obama um, health care and so forth. So the net investment income tax is 3.8%. Where the federal cap gains was on all income, net investment income tax goes on the unearned income, any kind of dividend income and so forth. So your cap gains could fall into that as well. Mm-hmm. But that's on anything, if you're married and filing joint, $250,000 or more, it's about 3.8%. Okay? Those are rates. It, I would love to say it's very easy to say, this is my gain, and I'm going to multiply this by this and this by this. It truly takes a CPA to sit down to understand the intricacies of this. Um, but those are the rates that you could have assessed against your property if you do not do a 1031 exchange. Um, and it's a lot higher. Most people think that all they have is the federal cap gains. Mm-hmm. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand and realize the 25% recapture depreciation is a huge part of that. And, of course, for the state that they live in as well. So it seems kind of punitive to say we're taking back what you depreciated. Yeah. Like, why? You know what? I wish I could tell you that, but, you know, all I know is exactly what it says you know, there's a lot of things in the tax code that a lot of us might say, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, as far as the reason why, I, I really don't know. But that's exactly what they do. They take back the recapture depreciation. If you think about, let's maybe look at why there's a 1031 exchange. And the reason is, is to put money back into the real estate and help continue to keep real estate growing and continuing to thrive. Mm-hmm. And maybe they do it to say, we really want you to put this back into the real estate. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know for sure. I mean, in, in anybody who owns real estate that has a good CPA, they're definitely going to depreciate it because it increases your cash flow on the property. Mm-hmm. So it's probably just to get it, the whole thing is to reinvest back into the real estate market and keep things going mm-hmm. and to keep that side of the economy going and people buying real estate. So maybe they do it to really give you a, I don't want to call it a penalty, but a reason to reinvest back into the real estate. If you're in the Nashville area, please join us for the monthly Middle Tennessee Investors and Wholesalers Network Happy Hour. Two hours of pure networking and deal-making. You'll meet brand new investors and wholesalers, all the way up to those that buy hotels. You can find more information and sign up on our website at corkscrewsandcontracts.com. Don't miss it. Networth Realty of Nashville is growing wealth in Tennessee by providing people across the Nashville metropolitan area with the tools and expertise they need to succeed in the residential real estate market. Their specialists understand the ins and outs of Nashville and are experts at locating undervalued properties in the city's most desirable neighborhoods. That's Networth Realty of Nashville, 615-823-2777. Um, I know when we were talking before about 1031 exchanges, you had mentioned that um, there's only so you have to basically claim this could be a property that I might use. Like mm-hmm. you had, and I can't remember the number, but so many properties that you kind of put out there saying the, these could possibly be the properties. Yes. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit? So um, kind of an overview of how it works when you're out there looking for those properties? Absolutely. So what you're getting back to is, again, we close on our property. The money goes from escrow directly over to the qualified intermediary, hopefully asset preservation. (laughs) And then at that point, um, you're going to have the clock start. Okay? And remember, it's a total 180 days broken into two periods. The first part is your identification period, 45 calendar days. Not... Holiday, I mean, not, you know, <laughs> not work days, days, business days, it's calendar days. And you must identify the properties or property that you want to purchase in that first 45. Once you go past that 45-day period, you have to buy one of the property or properties that you identified in order to satisfy your 1031 at equal or greater of your net sales price. Okay? So... When we look at that first 45 days, there's different ways to identify. There's three different rules of identification. Most people are familiar with what we call a three property rule. The three property rule says that you can go and identify any three properties. It limits your property numbers, three properties, at any dollar amount. Okay? So if I, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say I sell a property for a net sales price after paying real estate fees and so forth for a million dollars. 500 of it, I had to pay off the loan. 500 of it is cash that in net proceeds that move over to the qualified intermediary. So I go and identify property A for a million, property B for 1.2, and property C for 1.6. I really want property A, and it's past the 45-day period. If property A falls out, I have to go with either property B or C. I have to buy them. 
So what I suggest to people is that as soon as you get a contract on the property you're selling, what are you doing? You're starting to put contracts and LOIs out on properties that you're wanting to buy. You really don't want to get to your 45th day and have to identify and be with one of those properties. You want to be well into purchasing that property within the first 45 days, okay? Now, like I said earlier, you can identify it, you can purchase your property the next day and that counts as your identification. But I also have people, let's say they sold for a million dollars, right? And they are gonna buy four properties. They've got four properties they wanna buy and the aggregate value of those properties are probably gonna be about $1.6 million. So they met equal or greater than that sales price, right? Net sales price of a million dollars, but there's four properties. Well, the first property rule won't work for them because it's three properties at any dollar amount. Then we'll fall into the next property rule, and that property rule is called the 200% rule, which states that you can identify any number of properties. It doesn't restrict the number of properties, but it restricts the dollar amount that you can identify. So it says you can identify any number of properties as long as the aggregate value of the properties you identify do not exceed 200% of your net sales price. So now you see why I used a million dollars is easy to do. So as long as I do not exceed $2 million of identification of properties, I can identify more than three properties. So in my example, I've got four properties and the aggregate value is at 1.6. I can have four properties, aggregate value can be 2 million. But what happens if I'm selling for a million and I find six properties, I'm gonna buy a portfolio buy a portfolio of single-family resident homes, turnkey homes, or, you know, portfolio properties, and there's six of them, and they're $2.5 million. Well, prop identification rule one, I'm more than three properties. Identification rule two, I'm more than 200%, $2 million. And then we fall into identification number three. And this one sounds great, but there's a big <laughs> but at the end. You can identify any number of properties, so we're taking away the restriction of numbers, at any dollar amount. But you must close on 95% of what you identified. Mm. Okay? So if day 45 comes along and I find this guy that has a portfolio of properties, and I'm super excited about them, and it's day 45, and it's more than three properties, and it's more than 200% rule, and I'm just starting my due diligence on day 45 and I identify those, do you think if I have to close on 95%, I'm taking a big risk? Absolutely. Yes. Because you cannot go after day 45. You cannot backdate. You cannot change your mind. You must purchase what you're identifying. And I must close on 95%. And any good qualified intermediary will never, any qualified intermediary should never backdate. I jokingly say I don't look good in orange. I don't want to go to jail. And that we will not be backdating asset preservation. But have I seen the 95% rule work? Yes. Because, again, the 1031 exchanger, who is the investor, is already talking to the gentleman. While he has his property or she has her property, we'll go with her, while she has her property <laughs> under contract, and she's already talking about buying this portfolio, doing her due diligence, and most likely she's going to buy this portfolio within the 45 days anyways. Mm. Okay? 
But many people are led to believe and have only heard of the three property rule. You're not stuck to just three properties. You can buy portfolio properties. You can come out of a large property and buy multiple properties. It's just getting with the right person to explain the rules and talk to you a little bit about the rules. How does a market like Nashville really affect where properties go so fast? Um, or does is there a certain rule that's easier for markets like this? Or does it just depend on the person? Or um, My rule on a market, and, and, and really, if you could talk to anybody in any market across the country, um, basically a lot of markets are booming. I mean, um, you all know, I mean, you have investments in different places, and you've probably mm-hmm. seen, you know, it's picking up in places that we never thought would pick up. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it is right now a seller's market across the country for the most part, right? I can blanket statement that there might be a few offset places that's not really. But what I can tell you, if I was doing a 1031 exchange personally, and what I know and being in this industry since 2003, the moment I get a contract on a property, I'm looking. Even when I start thinking about selling my property, I'm already thinking, what asset class, what do I want to do with my money? So it's, you know, there are people that wait last minute, they can find property, but again, who wants to be put on a deadline for an investment, for a large investment, right? So the earlier you can plan, the better it is to to plan and, and be able to make sure you're already looking for a property, especially in Nashville. I mean, I mean the price changes in Nashville every day. Right, I think we increased by. I, I know this isn't true, but it feels like we increased by ten percent on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> but it is. I mean, you know, there. I, it was funny. I saw a meme lately, recently, and it was like um, Nashville people be saying, and it shows like a shack, twenty-five hundred dollars a month. So it, it is. It's crazy, you know, how much the market is increasing here. But it's great here in Nashville. I mean, not only do we have an increasing real estate market. We have a great job market, and we have a great career market here, and, and and things are just booming and doing well. But please be looking for your new property that you want to buy earlier than later. <laughs> what? Uh, you'd mentioned, of course, the, the money from the sale goes to the intermediary. That's correct. What if uh, if that sale is for a million net, mm-hmm. and so there's 500000 that goes to the intermediary, want to purchase something at one point six? Where does that extra six hundred thousand? Does it have to go to the intermediary in the meantime, or does it match up at closing on the new property? So that's a great question, and that does lead into something else that's very important to understand with the ten thirty one exchange. The equation to do a full tax deferral is that you must go equal or greater to your net sales price. So think about this: I sell a property after closing cost and realtor fees for a million dollars. 500 equity, 500 went to go pay off debt. There are many people that think all they have to do is replace the $500,000. But I ask you, what is the net sales price of that property? A million dollars, not (laughs) $500,000. So in order to do a 1031 exchange for tax deferral, full tax deferral, you must go replace your debt and replace the equity that's sitting with a qualified intermediary. So it's just like if you went and bought anything else, you're gonna to talk to a, a, to a lender and you're gonna get a loan at the same amount or greater than what you had on the previous property. 
right? Mm -hmm. So it's important that you understand you've got to replace that debt. So you pay off your loan of the previous property. Mm -hmm. The equity goes to the qualified intermediary. So when you're going looking at properties, you need to know that you're going to be having to finance those properties. So you're, that's why I said earlier on that you can start looking and knowing, you know, a banker knows or a lender knows, mm -hmm. 1031 exchange, they understand you've got the equity there, that you need to make sure that you can get the loan on the property as well because you have to replace that. So here's some other things that I see happen. Somebody says, well, I didn't know I had to replace debt. Well, if you only take the equity of the 500,000, you're gonna have, in my example, selling for a million dollars, you're gonna have $500,000, what we call mortgage boot. So even though you replace that cash, you're gonna have to pay your tax rates on the $500,000 of debt that you did not replace. Oh. So. <laughs> Yes. So make sure that you understand you got to replace all of your net sales price. If it's all cash, you're just going to replace all the cash. But if you got debt, you got to replace that too. But here's something else that people think as well. I sold my property for a million dollars. $500,000 of it went from my from my property to the qualified intermediary. 500 went to the uh, payoff loan. Well, what if I wanted to go get a loan for 600,000, right? And I go and I get $100,000 back to me to play with and $400,000 of equity on the next property. That's equal or greater of the net sales price. Do I have boot is what we call it, taxable boot, paying a portion of taxes? The answer is yes. Hmm. And people say, well, Jody, I went equal or greater than the net sales price. Well, the equation states that you must go equal or greater of the net sales price, replacing all the net equity. So if you have $500,000 of equity when all the expenses are paid, you must replace $500,000 of equity. Any money you keep outside of that is what we call taxable boot. So if I kept $100,000 of that money, I would pay taxes only on that $100,000. It's, it, it, you know, you don't, it's not all or none, mm -hmm. but what I'll refer to, 100% full tax deferral, equal or greater net sales price, replacing all the net equity. Hmm. If you want to keep some money, you certainly can. However, at that point, you will pay boot on that money. So a trip to Vegas, good idea, bad idea with that money? <laughs> it all depends on your risk tolerance and what you want to do. Um, I tell people all the time, I'm here to tell you what I see and what I know, what the 1031 exchange code says. What you decide to do is your business. <laughs> <laughs> Visit our friends at 840 Inspections who will inspect your home like it is their own. They use thermal imaging on all new construction inspections to show areas lacking in insulation or with water intrusion. They have a 100% buyer satisfaction guarantee and work weekends. Please visit their website, 840inspections.com for a quote or to schedule an inspection. Call 615-840-3040. We haven't really talked too much about opportunity zones on this podcast. Yes. Um, and a lot of people may not even realize they're out there. Mm -hmm. But um, how does opportunity zones work with 1031 exchanges? Perfect question. So the opportunity zone is a huge, huge buzzword for the real estate industry. Um, it has been for about the last year. But just kind of give you an idea. And, and please, again, I, I, I will say this multiple times. 
I'm no CPA. The opportunity zone is relatively new. So again, consult with someone that is an expert on opportunity zones, but I will do my best to give you an idea of what they are. Um, it's part of the 2017 Jobs Act, and basically it allows each governor of each state to identify areas that they want to either be redeveloped or that they want some growth, economic growth. It's not got to be like an impoverished area that they're trying to make completely brand new. It might be a redevelopment where it might be manufacturing that they want to try to get some business there or get some different, you know, kind of economic, different economic growth there. But each governor could identify opportunity zones if they're wanting this growth. And what it allows is for an investor to take any capital gains. So on a 1031 exchange, it is only for real estate, non-owner occupied, investment, held for investment real estate. You can only use gains, and remember it's not only the gains, you must go equal or greater than net sales price. With an opportunity zone, it's any gain. It can be gains from your um, stocks, it can be gains from real estate. But it allows you to take your gains and invest in this opportunity zone, the gains only. So you don't have to go equal or greater than net sales price. So if I bought a property for 200, selling it for 500, only have to take my $300,000, invest it into an opportunity fund, which is a partnership, a um, LLC, or a corporation, and then that fund invests in the opportunity real estate, okay? And the way that it works is I'm pretty sure it's 20, what's seven years from now? 26. 26, thank you. The, if you take your money up until the December 31st of this year, any of your gains, and you invest in opportunity fund that invest in opportunity property, zone property, and so forth, you can defer all of your capital gains on that gain until 2026. And at that time, if you hold it for that full seven years, you are, have a step up in basis and only pay 85% of those gains. And then if you do it for only five years, you get 10% step up. So you'll only pay 90% of those gains at that, at that time. The second great benefit is if you buy your fund, the opportunity fund buys a property, and there's a lot of rules to this. This is just the very basics of it. But the growth in that property, if it doubles, if I go from 300000 to 600000 all of the gain is tax-free. Remember, 1031 exchange is tax-deferred. All the gain in opportunity zone is tax-free. The difference also with an opportunity zone, you don't need a qualified intermediary, which is, is totally fine, you know, if it's something that worked for the client. This is self-reporting. You must take your funds and reinvest the gain in an opportunity fund within 180 days. Then the fund purchases into an opportunity zone property. That is the 60,000 foot level. What I can tell you, um, in the Nashville market, which is huge for some of the opportunity zones. There's some great opportunity zones, those that live here, the, the Wedgwood-Houston area down by the new soccer stadium, opportunity zone. We all know that's a great area for growth and so forth. There are companies locally that have funds there that you can invest in. 
because it's going to be very kind of difficult for you to do it individually. There's a lot to it, but there are big developers around that are doing it that are going to have funds that you can invest into their fund and so forth. But it's going to be something we're going to hear a lot of for the next year because this is the last year you're going to get the full 15% off of your taxes that you defer. And then after that, you can only get 10% for the next two years. And then after the next two years, you're only going to get the the growth in the property that you get the um, no taxes on in the growth of the property. But an opportunity zone, I mean, is definitely something you guys should look at and, to, and talk about. It's great for investors, especially if somebody already owns a property in there. Um, it, the property could be potentially be better value. Um, and, you know, again, if somebody wants to not do all of their 1031 exchange and have to take the bases plus their gains and might want to keep their bases, Opportunity Zone gives them an opportunity to keep money in their pocket as well. But there's definitely people here that could talk a lot better on it than me. <laughs> I feel like this is already going to be a podcast where people are going to rewind and play again and rewind and play again. We've, we've talked at least two or three times now. And I go, oh, there's something else that I'm still understanding. How do people get a hold of you? How Thank can they you. call Joey? <laughs> I appreciate that. So as I said, there's a few, one last thing I want to talk about on the yeah. exchange. Um, at the beginning, when I talk about your money goes directly from escrow mm -hmm. over to your qualified intermediary, okay? Asset Preservation Inc., who I work with, is a large national qualified intermediary, excuse me. What that means is we work on a national basis. There are individuals just like myself in other cities, uh, Texas, Florida, definitely have individuals in different areas. Uh, Denver, I mean, Colorado, California, Virginia, I could go on and on and on. Um, so we service all over the country and work with real estate investors, real estate professionals to be first and foremost help provide education on the 1031 process. Of course, we would love to be your qualified intermediary. What's important when choosing a qualified intermediary? We become your bank. All of your money goes from escrow, wired directly to an account set up by asset preservation. Who regulates us? Nobody. <laughs> you listen. <laughs> Nobody. So, the, so when the money comes over to your qualified intermediary, there is no regulatory body hmm. regulating what the qualified intermediary does. So many people will say, well, I'll just use my attorney or I'll use this person or that person. That's great. 99% of the people out there, I am a positive person. I feel like are good people. But there have been stories and there have been situations where a qualified intermediary has not done good with the money. Um, there have been just outright criminals. And then there has been times where a qualified intermediary takes that money and might decide to invest in collateralized mortgage obligations back in 2009, 2007, <laughs> so forth and so on. Um, it's very important to choose your qualified intermediary wisely. Asset preservation is owned by a large publicly traded company. Uh, we are not going out and investing money in collateralized mortgage obligations. And we have been doing exchanges since 1990. Uh, we've done over 180,000 exchanges. We do exchanges for large REITs, uh, large institutional clients, and uh, large companies across the country. 
we set up tier one bank accounts to move the money over to. So these are gonna be large uh, banks that everybody knows of and the money goes into those accounts. So we're not out there doing anything fishy with the money. Again, we're backed by a large publicly traded company and the money that we hold for our clients is not gonna be, you know, we're, we have it safe for the clients. Mm. So it's important when choosing your qualified intermediary that you look at those different issues as well. I also caution people that might want to use their own attorney that says that they can do it. Um, there's something called a disqualified person. That's anybody who, because anybody can be a qualified intermediary. You you can have anybody be your qualified intermediary, but a disqualified person is an immediate family member or someone who has done business with you in the last two years mm -hmm. from the time that you close. So if your attorney has done business for you and then is the one that's being your qualified intermediary, they're a disqualified person and it could disqualify your 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. So just really do your due diligence in choosing a 1031 exchange qualified intermediary. Um, again, as I've said, I'm with Asset Preservation Inc. We're a large national company and anybody can call me anytime um, on on my cell phone. It rings 24-7. My, my mm -hmm. office line is always tied to my cell phone, but you can reach me, of course, at 615-406-2384. Our corporate office, you can reach any time at 866-394-1031. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and just like the rest of our guests, we will put um, Jody and her company's information on our um, Court Screws and Contracts website, as well as a link that links to your website. Thank you. Thank so. you very much. I'm looking forward to speaking to anybody and helping anybody out. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been great. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of Corkscrews and Contracts. Podcast copyright 2019.